The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, September 13th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I read Hillary Clinton's book. Well, read. I did the 2017 version of Read. I heard her on three podcasts. I read four reviews. I saw a lot of people on Twitter talking about the important parts. I watched an entire Today Show interview. This counts as reading, does it not? It's more reading than actually reading. I bet our editor didn't put in as much time as I did. So after all of her recriminations and revelations and recitations, here was my takeaway. I was stunned, to be honest. I I didn't know what to think about it because I knew there was nothing there. And we had trouble finding out what was really going on. Uh, And so I was just dumbfounded. No, actually, that was Hillary Clinton talking about her immediate reaction to the Comey reinvestigation, which she cites as the proximate cause of her downfall. And that's fair, I think, proximate cause. Her enemies, maybe even some of her frustrated voters, will say she's whining. Actually, she's explaining. And she's also right. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear her cite the Comey investigation. And sexism, a lot of us really don't want to hear that. But there are really plausible factors in her losing and also poor political messaging and campaign missteps, which she acknowledges it's all there in the book, which I read or, you know, more than read, as I've established. But so many Americans just can't take it. They just can't take her. Never could. Never did. They don't want to hear from her. America hates presidential losers, even when they win the popular vote. But there's something else at play here. And I have it. I have the perfect analogy. I was so excited when I thought about this analogy this morning that I tweeted it. And I usually don't like to scoop myself, but I'm just proud to put it out there. Here is the analogy that explains people's reaction to Hillary Clinton. And it's this. Hillary Clinton is human cilantro. Human cilantro. Some people think cilantro is just fine. It's an herb that does its job. It's a reliable enhancer when it collaborates with other ingredients. Hey, put it in the salsa. But other people don't like the taste, right? Because not everything is to everyone's taste and they're rational about it. They'd rather taste something else. Okay, I get that. But there is a category and it is a large category of people who are driven crazy by cilantro, hate cilantro. It offends them. It repels them irrationally. And scientists have actually found a genetic indicator of this. People think it tastes like soap. And guess what? Cilantro haters have a certain olfactory receptor gene. It's OR6A2. And that picks up the smell of certain chemicals that are in cilantro and soap. So it literally is an irrational hatred. It's not an unnatural hatred, but it is separated from the intellect. And because of this effect, certain people who you might think would be predisposed to like cilantro can't stand cilantro. Take Julia Child. She loved herbs. And then put in some herbs like a bay leaf. And I'm going to use about a half a teaspoon of powdered sage. But Julia Child hated cilantro. Now, for our analogy, Maureen Dowd is Julia Child. Can't stand Hillary Clinton. Now, there are some people who will cite cilantro and also Hillary Clinton's health benefits. Hey, it's good for you. Cilantro just simply deserves, after all this time, to be in the recipe mix. And what's Donald Trump, you're asking? Oh, that's easy. He's a greasy fast food burger. Eh, 
All these people telling us to eat these fancy vegetables. Give me the burger. It's a lot easier to market a burger, isn't it? Like how Carl's Jr. did it by slopping a burger all over a bikini model. The chairman of Carl's Jr., by the way, was President Trump's original choice to be labor secretary. He withdrew, citing the invasiveness of the confirmation process. And Donald Trump's diet is fast food. And Hillary Clinton, human cilantro, same initials even, HC, right? Get that? Hillary Clinton, it has been confirmed, has consumed cilantro, her spirit herb. The White House chef who she hired, Walter Scheib, includes cilantro several times in his book, White House Recipes. Hillary Clinton is human cilantro. She's polarizing. She's nutritious. Intellectually, she might seem good, but she just doesn't appeal to a lot of people's gut. On the show today, I spiel about the London Fatberg. Oh, the Fatberg. It is compelling. It attracts me. It has its own gravitational pull, as does, you know, similar to the Fatberg uh, in a you-can't-look-away kind of uh, effect. Chris Gethard, comedian, podcaster, and host of the Once Cable Access, and now available to everyone who has a cable system, Chris Gethard Show. It's on True TV in between episodes of Impractical Jokers and, you know, some lady whose body they can't find. There's Chris Gethard and his band of miscreants creating havoc and merriment on your television. And now he's here with me in the studio. The Chris Gethard Show, uh, a live television experience, is a beloved institution. Now, when I say beloved, here's the thing with beloved. Beloved is a little bespoke. You don't know it, but think about what is and isn't referred to as beloved, like Harry Potter or Shakespeare or, or Star Wars. Those things are all beloved, but that's not the first adjective you associate with them. Those are transformative or world-changing or genius. See, the Chris Gethard Show was all that, but when it was on public access, we had to say it was beloved because it was a little niche, but now it's exploded. It's on true TV and people just clicking around. Sometimes, depending on your cable provider, reaching only the 30s can come across the Chris Gethard experience. Chris does a lot of things. We're going to talk all about all of them. Hello, Chris. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. That was such a nice intro. I think I feel it's good about myself. I right think now. I think it's uh, it's beloved and it's set to become, you know, culturally dominating. I well, think. that's always been the goal yeah. ever since our public access days. So maybe now the world will finally listen. So as, as I tabulate it, you do about three and a half things unless I'm missing something. You're pretty much full-time stand-up, pretty much full-time host of this uh, former cable access show. And you have the great podcast, Beautiful Anonymous. And the half thing is acting. I've seen you in movies essentially playing. Uh, you were in Mike Birbiglia's movie about improvers playing a version of yourself. Am I missing any? Are you doing, uh, are you still writing for Strange New Jersey or doing carpentry yeah. on the side? Am I missing anything? No weird New Jersey stuff. I am working on another book right now. So that's another half thing. Jesus. So it adds up to four. Right. No rest for the wary, right? So here is my question. I have this presumption, but you tell me if it's true, that if we took away any leg of that table, the other three would change. In other words, I think you probably get something out of Beautiful Anonymous that you don't get out of stand-up, that you don't get out of the public access show. And as a result, each independently can just be the fullest version of itself. Is that about right? Yeah, I think that's extremely true. I think some of them would be more apt to stand on their own than others, or or, or some of them would 
suffer more if the others went away. But I think it is. It's like a weird little ecosystem that I've built for myself. Right. So I want to get to the uh, true TV show. But for instance, Beautiful Anonymous, that perhaps exemplifies my theory the most because I feel you don't have the real pressure to be funny. You're naturally funny. You often use humor to help the caller along. And if people haven't heard, it's a sort of confessional podcast one-on-one. A caller will tell you something interesting and you'll pursue that. But often you'll pursue that uh, without really resorting to humor. And I think without the humorous outlets, uh, that wouldn't be as natural for you. Yeah. And even, even with that being the case, it kind of exploded on me. I didn't expect it. And it's a thing that, you know, many, many people listen to it and many people only know me from that. And it's not funny. And there's a part of me, it's like, I've worked so hard over the years to be funny, but that's really ego at the end of the day. And that one's not always the funniest. Very often it's actually like grim or dark or disturbing. One of the things that I've just learned, and, and maybe some of this is just getting older, is at the end of the day, it, it, it's like you have to push the ego out of the way. Ego is, an, is a way to put it. Grappling or reconceiving of your identity is another. You go to a comedy show, either it's in a comedy club or just you're the name in a theater. But you know what the people want. And if you're not giving them that, you feel like you're letting down some portion of the bargain. But with Beautiful Anonymous, the people don't necessarily want that. And as you say, every fifth show you'll mention, by the way, I'm a stand-up comedian. A lot of you guys don't even know that. Yes. 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 So that, that, but that's not what they want. And that's <laughs> you, you learn that and that's a fine thing and uh, you embrace it. Beautiful Anonymous in particular, it's it's not my job to lead it or to win at it. Stand up, you lead and you win. Beautiful Anonymous, it's much more, let's just dive into a river together and see where the rapids take us and try to keep each other afloat. So how this shows up in the true TV, the now true TV show, the Chris Gethard show is I think that show would be different if that was your only outlet. And we have evidence of that because when there is a big late night show where it's the Jimmy Fallon show or the David Letterman show or Johnny Carson, that person is always more supreme. And I see you just as a master of ceremony where you want zaniness to occur around you. People ask me to to define the show, and it's not a simple thing. Like it, it, people go, like it's kind of a talk show, but kind of a variety. But it's also a call-in show, and it's weird. But at the end of the day, it's a talk show named after a guy, and that guy is never in control. And I think by kind of knocking myself off that pedestal very visibly, making myself kind of low status. I think it sends up a signal flare to the audience of like, oh, this is not always perfect. But it's real. Like, this guy really doesn't know what's going to happen. This really is open-ended. It's also a live show again. It was live on public access. We were on Fusion. It wasn't live. True TV is putting it on live, which is bonkers to me that a network with that much reach would take a chance on it. But when you see something fall apart and you see me under duress and you (laughs) see me not in control and you know it's live, I think there's real proof there to an audience of like, well, this is not the same old, very controlled, sanitized, safe TV So some of it is you have a guest that doesn't quite jibe with maybe the uh, cool alt comedy with an edge of punk scene. Method Man shows up, for instance, who was great and giving, and I loved him. Who else have you had of that ilk uh, who's like a 180 or like a 160 from what you usually do? Yeah, some of the people you wouldn't expect. Diddy was Mm -hmm. another person who you wouldn't expect. That was a big thing when he, he... Dane to do your show, not quite knowing what it was, maybe? Yes. And a lot of my career was built on that because it got so much momentum of like, why is Diddy hanging out with this weird kid in an underground comedy theater in a basement? 
public access we had not as a musical guest as the guests uh the band Sleater Kinney yeah when they reunited their I think their first television appearance was actually on our public access show which meant a lot and it was just such like a weird trippy night we've had a lot of pro wrestlers on the show which is another good fit does wrestling inform the show in any way oh big time I talk about this with the writers all the time like these aren't comedians but they're people who have something in common which is that they have a persona and an image that they are able to get across in just a handful of moves. Mm -hmm. And if you watch our show, a lot of the characters, like one of the most popular characters on our show, Vacation Jason. What's his deal? <laughs> he's a guy, he's always on vacation. That's just pro wrestling, if you ask me. But you let know, me like, interrupt. Does the, reason, absolutely. does the reason that work, because the show is chaotic, the show has no structure, so usually you have the structure of a show and then the characters can be chaotic, but here it's kind of the opposite. The show's chaotic. Let's have the characters be much more identifiable, orient the audience. Yep, and you don't have to think too hard to get them. Mm -hmm. There's also things like, as far as me being put under duress so often in the <laughs> show, like... Here's a thing that's happening about two thirds of the way through the show that's really tough on me, really tough on me, really tough on me. The built, the whole bit is built, and just like wrestling, people forget that I wrote these bits. Mm -hmm. I opted into them. My writers write. It's, I'm not participating in anything I haven't signed off on. But we built a whole rig where I was being dunked into a giant tub of ice over and over again. The crowd's going, "Oh man, we're watching the guy suffer." Let's do it. Three, two, two one. one. Here we go. No. You got, you, you got this. You got this. It has to last longer than this. It has Go. to last longer than this. Adam, believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. No. No. My toes. My toes. My knees. No. No. But then when I come out okay on the other again, the other end, then they go, oh, right. He's just this dude who suffered for us. He's one of us. He's back in control. The nerd, the underdog, he took over again. It's just wrestling. It's just wrestling, you know? Like, it yeah. all comes back it's to It's wrestling, wrestling and it's comic books and it's the oh. kid who was, it's Spider-Man and it's the weakling who was picked on. And and it's the X-Men, the, yeah, the kid yeah. who was born different. The, people sometimes ask, like, you know. Sometimes a late night host will have a sidekick. You have Ed McMahon, you have Andy Richter, but you have like five or six friends sitting out there. That's the X-Men to me. That's mm -hmm. all the oddballs and misfits who don't have another perfect fit in the comedy world. One question about a specific show. You did a show where you and everyone were working out. I mean, really going for mm -hmm. it on, I think you were on an elliptical, but uh -huh. you did, you know, some burpees and... What was, so how was that different from just the normal duress of uh, uh, getting dunked in a tank? I mean, obviously you were doing it to yourself, but did it, did it help the comedy, hurt the comedy, get in the way of the comedy? To me, it, it opens up the real potential to help the comedy because you're totally out of your comfort zone. You got a host up there who's running on an elliptical for an hour straight. You have the co-host who she does, my friend Shannon, she does CrossFit for real. She's she's deadlifting 300 pounds while it's happening. And we have a celebrity. We have Adam Pally, who, you you know, he's from Happy Endings and, and, and Making History, all these shows, movies. Callers are calling up, telling them, all right, do 100 jumping jacks, do 30 push-ups. Well, at this point to me, you've got this weird, absurd stunt, and that maybe gets you, if you're flipping the channels, to stop. But then what are you left with? You're left with people who don't have the capacity anymore to keep their guard up. Right. You have physically been taken out of a place where you can overthink this and over strategize this. So you have to be yourself. You have to be real. 
And a lot of the reason behind me, because I'd, I'd like to think at the end of the day, I'm a pretty smart guy. But if you hear about just the general premise of any given episode I do, you might think it's a very dumb show. And I'm proud that it's a dumb show, but a lot of my favorite things in this world are smart people doing dumb things in a smart way. And there's a real strategy in, in my on my end, which is I do these dumb things. We once had an audience where the whole studio audience was dogs. We once did a show with Seth Meyers where we, the whole um, cast stayed awake for 36 hours before we started. Once you've been awake for 36 hours straight, you can experience blackouts and hallucinations. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard and I've been awake for over 36 hours straight. <laughs> Welcome to the Chris Gethard Show. My basic cognitive functions failed about five hours ago when I almost threw up trying to learn to speak Italian. <laughs> all of these things are weird, and I know that. Many of them are dumb, but they all make us put our guard down. They all make a celebrity put their guard down. They make a celebrity enter our world. Mm. And in my mind, what I love, because you also have kids calling in on the phone, and what that kind of hopefully underlines is that like they come here, they play on our terms. They're working out. They're put under these circumstances they don't expect. And you get to call in from the middle of Missouri or wherever you live and you get to put the screws to them, talk to them honestly, and it's not censored. And in my mind, my job with the show, one of my big jobs is I'm not part of the world of celebrity. I have my toe dipped in that. Mm. Really what I am is the representative of all the people who might call in on the phone tonight. I'm one of them. And I bring, I drag you kicking and screaming into this weird world, celebrity. And if you can look good here, it shows that you're cool and you can let your guard down. But this is not going to be a safe environment where you get to just say a bunch of stuff that we effectively rehearsed the day before. No way. No way. Since this is a show with the DNA of public access and some UCB Theater Live, you know, you were on Fusion before, now you're on uh, True TV. There's got to be an executive whose job it is. I mean, there's some guy who at least part of his salary is to give you notes. How do you deal with that guy or girl? Her name is Christine. Okay. She's the best. <laughs> we're very lucky to have her. She's she's incredible. I've actually, she I've known her through UCB for many years, so she really gets it. True TV has let us do it live, which should terrify executives. It was their idea. They bought it as a scripted show. They came to me and were like, what would you think about doing it live again? I said, oh my God, I can't believe you're bringing this up. For me and just my mentality coming from a punk rock background, coming from the public access background, I I, I can't thank them deeply enough for that because I would so much rather fail on my terms than fail trying to check someone else's boxes. Yeah, then it's a double failure. Then you failed yourself, I, you failed the old. Then I goal. failed and didn't stand yeah. up for myself. Yeah. We're pitching them right now on an idea. I think you will enjoy this one where I, I don't know if they're going to go for this one where we're going to tell them, let us take the budget for an episode and go to Atlantic City a couple weeks out and see if we can either double yeah. or lose the budget. Are you okay with us spending your money that way? <laughs> I think that's a pretty fascinating episode of television. We went and gambled the budget. It's either going to be a, an episode that visibly has more budget than the other episodes, or we have to figure out how to do this thing on zero dollars. I'll give you an idea. Atlantic City's one thing. You should go to like the Yonkers Racino. I've where thought you about go it. Go outside, put some on the harness racing. Uh -huh. Go inside, put some in the slots. <laughs> it's not, you don't have enough as well, many they don't live have the dealers, table games. Right? They, either, don't have, right? they have electronic table games, and, but the horses. Oh, nice the horses shot. are pretty fun. You are right on that. <laughs> 
<laughs> horse races. The trotters? <laughs> yeah, it's ultimately like, what's the saddest, most desperate version oh, yeah. of this? And I oh, think yeah. Atlantic City gives any town. I'm a Jersey guy. I love Atlantic City. I root for Atlantic City. But man, it can be a grim place in the off season. Chris Gethard, uh, Beautiful Anonymous is the podcast and the Chris Gethard Show on True TV. It's live. So normally I don't even memorize when a show is on. I just say, you know, just uh, DVR it. But it's live. Thursdays at 11. Thursdays at 11. You could call in. Chris, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And now the spiel. You know how an English accent makes everything sound so classy? Yeah, until this. A 15-ton ball of fat, wet wipes and sanitary products has been clogging up the sewers in southwest London. And what did they call this thing? Experts found the source of the problem, a so-called fatberg. The fatberg left old blighty gobsmacked. What with its morass of cooking oils, used condoms and diapers. Well, I guess not all the condoms were used that well. What with the diapers? Okay, the clip we played, full disclosure, that was actually a huge fatberg from two years ago. The current fatberg, right, the massive fat clogging up the sewer, the current fatberg breaks all existing fatberg records. It's 145 tons, or T-O-N-N-E-S, as the English spell it, thus underlining just how gigantic tons are. Fatbergs are common problems in all the world's sewer systems, not just London. Though I gotta say, as neighbors at Kutcher's in the bungalow next door, you couldn't find a nicer couple than the Fatbergs. They play canasta with you, they help you drain your cooking oil. Lovely, lovely couple, the Fatbergs. This Fatberg, the English Fatberg, has clogged what's described as a Victorian-era sewer. And I gotta say, I love that. That is now my favorite setting. The next time I get dragooned into attending a friend's improv, I'm yelling out a setting, Victorian era sewer. I'm going to let you guys fight out situation. Oh, everyone wants to get in on situation. Uh, you're a former child actor looking to endorse a line of vegan dog treats. You're a physicist with a secret. Uh, you're a vlogger hoping to transition to webisodes. Screw that. I'm just waiting for a, I need a setting and I'm going to be there with Victorian sewer. Anyway. This fatberg represents an international problem. Did you know that New York City has an official program called Cease the Grease? It was better than the rejected branding effort. Practice oleogenous abstinence. Although some, due to the dryness of cuisine, have oleogenous abstinence thrust upon them. Anyway, according to figures in NYC State of the Sewers performance metric documents, a real thing, they break down sewer cloggages by borough. What I found fascinating was that there's an overall citywide rate of 71% of all cloggings, stoppages, cloggages, let's call them. 71% of all cloggages can be traced to Greece, but it really differs by borough. So Manhattan, Staten Island, and Brooklyn, Greece accounts for half of all cloggings. But in the Bronx, it was 89%, and in Queens, it was 88%. But back to London, where the Fatberg will soon be renamed by participants in a BBC online naming contest, Fatbergy McFatbergface. Or if Kmart has its say, they're going to be calling it the Fabulous Berg. Have you heard this? Kmart is branding, rebranding its former plus sizes as Fabulous Size, 
which is great. At this rate, 20% of all Americans will soon be experiencing, nay, celebrating adult onset fabulides. I, for one, cannot wait for the Fatberg movie. It writes itself. The theme song certainly does. Near, far, wherever you are, I believe that the fat will go on. Thank you, thank you. I will be opening a Las Vegas theater in Caesars Palace and teaming up with an avant-garde acrobatic troupe for a Fatberg Day Soleil. Witness as trained gymnasts and dancers from Montreal congeal as one from disparate causes. The girl who plays the condom, the boy who plays the used diaper, find themselves in this, in this Fatberg in the middle of the stage. Fatberg the musical. Come catch that. Fun Fatberg stats. The Fatberg is the weight of 22 African elephants, or since we're not in Africa, 11 English double-decker buses. London residents desperately want to get rid of the Fatberg, but pollsters are saying the Remain campaign still leads slightly. Theresa May promised ridding the sewers of Fatbergs. She says it'll be a process for sure, but it's doable. She cites the experience of that 2015 Fatberg, uh, the clip about which we played. Jeremy Corbyn, however points out that the country has barely rid itself of another disgusting sewer dweller, Nigel Farage. He's questioning whether the Fatberg can really be cleared. All in all, the Fatberg is a perfect metaphor for modern life. It is a direct consequence of our actions. It is an indictment of our excess. We pretend it's surprising, yet it keeps happening. It disgusts us, yet we can't look away. Luckily, America has no clear analog for this particular unctuous mass of refuse. And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson's hallway is always clogged up with a half dozen wannabe jazz singers or maybe guys who just never learned the lyrics. It's a scatberg. Dan Schrader, just producer's pipes are clogged with a collection of Republican politicians like Paul Ryan and Jason Chaffetz who expressed displeasure in Donald Trump but went on to do his bidding. They've all been amalgamated into one simpering, pulsating doormat berg. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is all gummed up now that Damon Runyon characters and fast-talking dames in screwball comedies from the 40s have amassed in the sewers. It's called a rat-a-tat-tat-berg. The gist, you know what? When you think about all the major participants in the Camp David Accords, they all left hard-to-grapple-with legacies, be it the Anwar Sadat berg, Jimmy Carter's Habitat Burg, or the blockage found under Menachem Begin's favorite kosher restaurant, which was a Glatberg. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.